0: Welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's wonderful to worship the Lord with you today, whether in person or online. We're so glad you can join us. Well, today it's really an honor that we get to invite back Reverend Milton Eng to preach to us yet again. He's a professor, a Bible scholar. He's been a pastor for many years. It's always a special opportunity to hear him teach us. So welcome, Pastor Milton. Thank you, Pastor Nathan, for introducing me and for that wonderful opening prayer for so many needs in the world around us. As you know, I've been sharing a brand new series of messages on the uh, 10 Commandments, and I wanna thank you for bearing with me as this messages are kind of a uh, first draft, and uh, each time I share these messages, I revise and I edit and I improve. It's like teaching a class at the university or seminary. You have to teach it like three times before you really feel comfortable with it. If you recall last uh, June, uh, two months ago, I shared uh, a message on the first commandment, no other gods. And so today we'll be looking at the next commandment, uh, the second commandment. And before we get into the details of that, I just want to point out um, a, uh, take a look at the shape of the Ten Commandments. I know you probably cannot read um, all the fine print, but I think it's good enough just to see um, the shape of the Ten Commandments before we get into the second one. And to realize that each commandment is not the same in length. And this second one happens to be the longest in terms of words and texts, or maybe the second longest in um, this code of law. you remember the first commandment is only one sentence, one verse, you shall have no other gods before me. And then when we get to the uh, second one, it's three verses long and um, many, I don't know, many times longer than the second commandment. Later on, when we get to um, the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments, they're even shorter. For example, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder is only four words in English, and in Hebrew is even shorter, it's only two words in Hebrew. So um, we have a lot to cover uh, in today's message. I'll do my best, uh, the best I can. And um, But uh, if we ever get to the Sixth Commandment, that's going to be a very short sermon. So I guess I'll make up for it then. It's also important to remind ourselves that the numbering of the commandments is different in different traditions. And there are various reasons, all kind of um, with their own reasonable rationale. So in the Catholic and Lutheran traditions, for example, our first commandment And our second commandment are actually considered uh, one commandment. They're considered the uh, first commandment. They're combined um, versus uh, commandment number one and commandment number two. And there is some overlap, so it's an interesting thing to keep in mind. So with that uh, introduction to the shape of the uh, so-called ten words, let me read to you today's scripture reading and then open in prayer. punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us open in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this gathering here, this first day of the week to honor you and to learn from your word and the fellowship with one another. We pray, Lord, that once again your word would set us apart, sanctify us, us, and help us discern what is your will and your way as we take a look at your word. Be with us, we pray. May your Holy Spirit inspire, instruct, and challenge us in our daily living for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Before we... uh, dig into the meaning of the second commandment, I want to address two problems that this text brings to us, verses four to six. The first one has to do with this business of God being a jealous God. I remember there was a Christian in my old church who came up to the pastor at that time, not me, and was asking him, pastor, pastor, you know, I just read in the Bible that God is a jealous God. Isn't there something wrong with that? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? And this pastor had a wise answer. Well, it depends. You know, if you're married and someone is chasing your wife or chasing your husband, wouldn't you be jealous? Isn't that a good thing? If you're not jealous, then something's wrong. Something's wrong with you. The idea here is that God desires that exclusive relationship with you and I. That's why he says, I am a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. I love you, I adore you, I want that exclusive relationship between you and I, and I and you. Actually, um, scholars say this word in Hebrew really has more the idea of being zealous, and um, there's one translation that actually used the expression, um, I am a zealous God. Here's the the, um, translation of a, a Jewish translation, the Tanakh translation of verse five, which reads, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am an impassioned God. So I'm not sure if jealous, zealous, or impassioned, but it's the idea that God is for us and we are for him. There's actually a contemporary Christian song. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Oh, how he loves us so. And uh, the first line, the first lyric is, he is jealous for me loves like a hurricane and i am a tree sorry for the singing but um, um, i think that song really um, portrays the kind of idea and the feeling that god is jealous for us that exclusive relationship he wants us completely and we should be completely devoted for him so there's nothing wrong with god being a jealous god The second issue is this, does God punish children for the sin of the parents? A lot of Christians have problem with this uh, particular verse 5b. Well, there are three things to be said that qualifies this statement and to take it into a proper context. The first thing is this, you have to um, continue to read in the passage uh, as it applies here in verse five, the first thing is this, um, verse 5 P for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, what of those who hate me, of those who hate me. So the idea is that this is kind of not a random punishment. God just simply punishes the children for the sin of the parents, but it's qualified by the statement of those who continue to hate me, whether it's the second generation, the third generation, or the fourth generation. There's actually um, passages, legislation, like for example in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, where parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children to be put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So um, there are other verses that seem to uh, suggest or to counter or balance what we have here in verse five. And then the third qualification is you have to look at the other half of the verse, verse six, the statement, verse six. Yes, God is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but verse six, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So actually, um, I just noticed recently that the Ten Commandments are somewhere between prose and poetry. There's, there's an element of, uh, it's not pure poetry, but there's an element of um, uh, a poetic feel to the Ten Commandments. And so we have here a parallelism, an antithetic parallelism. On the one hand, um, you know, God punishes, third and fourth generation for those who hate him, and then the antithetic parallel is, on the other hand, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So, just to kind of get that out of the way, um, I wanted to uh, to address that up front in the beginning. I, again, this is a long text, and uh, we probably won't have time to discuss it at, uh, after the service. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What is this commandment actually mean? I often like to quote the King James Version, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Uh, I think it sounds more holy, that's like, just to be honest with you, but not that I depend on the King James Version, it just sounds a little bit more holy. No graven images. I was saying, what does what that word graven actually mean? Uh, that's the old King James version, does it refer to a grave, you know, where someone's buried or does it refer to the verb, uh, this is a grave thing you have done. Uh, so it's um, um, my lead into it, what, this, what does this commandment actually mean, no graven images? Well, once again, we look at the Hebrew word and the Hebrew word here is pesel. This Hebrew word means a carved image generally made of wood or stone and chiseled into shape. So when the King James Version talks about graven image, it's actually quite accurate. It means a carved image, something sculpted by human beings. So we're talking about a man-made three-dimensional object stone or wood usually um, that is an object of worship. We're talking here about an idol, an idol. It's interesting to see the various translations of uh, this verse four and how they struggled with it um, uh, to give you a, a, a better picture here. King James Version uses the word any graven image. The NIV 1984 version Uh, uses the word uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. It actually uses the word idol. But then in 2011 the NIV changed that and says do not make for yourself an image. So you go from idol to image. Uh, The last two translations are probably uh, better and more accurate to convey the idea. uh, Once again the Tanakh translation, a Jewish translation, says you shall not make for yourself a sculptured image, so it is the idea of a man-made carved sculptured image. And then the ESV actually uses the word, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, a carved image. So we're talking here once again about an idol. So the second commandment is specifically forbidding, uh, you know, in its wording is specifically forbidding uh, the worship of idols. What is idolatry or idolatry is the worship of any sculptured image or representation of God. Uh, So we're talking about some physical, man-made, three-dimensional, possibly two-dimensional representation of God. It was interesting, I was just reading uh, in my morning devotions, finishing the book of Revelation, got up to chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, and then I was astonished that even in the book of Revelation, there are allusions to the Ten Commandments. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the things that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, among other things, and um, I need to follow up with this in the future, but it speaks of those who will not be part of the new Jerusalem. Verse 8 but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, you know, sixth commandment the sexually immoral, the uh, seventh commandment, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters. So this is kind of a big deal, even in the New Testament, going to the Book of Revelation, idolaters, idolaters, and then next, all liars, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, the, uh, the, the ninth commandment. So, um, this issue about idolatry, God seems to take very, very seriously. It's interesting to uh, to give you a feel once again of this this ban of this prohibition of the uh, Second Commandment. Um, I'd like to read to you Deuteronomy chapter four, verses fifteen to eighteen, there on your screen, and. Um, Chapter four is the context before chapter five is introduced, which is, um, you know, these are the speeches of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. So chapter four kind of sets the stage for the 10 commandments that are repeated in uh, chapter five. And uh, these verses kind of address this particular issue of uh, worship of idols. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image in any shape, whether form like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. So similar to, um, you know, the second word, these verses cover all the bases. Any image, whether man or woman, whether uh, animal, bird, um, even a creature on the ground, even fish in the sea. So, uh, in, 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 uh, um, so, so this is this is kind of like um, at the ground level. Here at the ground level, this is the meaning. Of this second commandment, a ban and prohibition on any and all reprata- uh, representations of what the God of Israel, uh, the God of Yah- the God Yahweh might might uh, might look like. Now, this is. Uh, um, let me see. Yeah, this is. It's important to realize that this uh, teaching. Is uh, very unusual for its time. Uh, uh, one of the things about this is this commandment is hard to apply because, you know, um, we don't have the problem of idolatry across this. You know, across the history of civilization, probably due to the influence of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, you know, the the major religions of the world are, are monotheistic, and we don't quite have this a feature of of religion which is um, the worship of idols. So it's important to recognize that this is a very unusual for its time because nearly all ancient religions worship through images. There might be one occasion or uh, one uh, tiny, tiny exception, but Pretty much all ancient religions worshipped through images or idols. This was practically the meaning of religion back then. Here's a quotation from one uh, commentary, quote, there are no ancient Near Eastern laws comparable to the second commandment. So the Uh, The 10 commandments, particularly in the second half about murder, adultery, false testimony, there are a lot of ancient Near Eastern laws that are similar or equivalent. But when it comes to this uh, second commandment, there are, as far as we know today, no ancient Near Eastern laws that ban the worship of images or idols. So Israel is truly unique in this one particular feature the prohibition of the worship of idols. Let me show you some uh, images. The gods of the ancient Near East, here's a a combination thrown together in one graphic. There on the right you see the Egyptian uh, goddess Isis. The Egyptian goddess Isis has horns, bovine horns, and then that disc in between is the sun disc. Um, And then on the left, you have a a portrait of Baal or Baal, which is a very powerful Canaanite deity of storm and rain. And Baal was a very powerful, um, a very popular deity in Canaan. And actually many Israelites had fallen to the worship of Baal and, and Asherah. Even in the New Testament, the 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 ancient world was full of idols. in the in the city of Ephesus was a huge temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple of Artemis was actually twice as large as of other temples, uh, reportedly twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Can you believe that? And um, this. The temple was dedicated to Artemis, the mother goddess of fertility and the goddess of animals and things of that sort. And they have found many of these uh, statues of Artemis. And actually, if you go to Ephesus, they sell them as souvenirs nowadays. You can buy one as a souvenir. Archaeologists have also found uh, at least a thousand, a thousand of these uh, clay statues of uh, Asherah in the late Judean kingdom period. Um, uh, here, Asherah is another uh, kind of like consort of Baal, a uh, female deity of um, fertility. So the ancient world was full of idols all over the place. And um, in this commandment, God it says, No, no, no. There are no worship of idols for my people. How do we apply this today? Because uh, for most, you know, again, for most modern religions, um, pretty plain and simple, we don't have thousands of idols all over the place. And um, the question is, you know, how do we apply that to today? Well, before we get that, I want to address, once again, two sort of application questions. First of all, does this uh, commandment ban all religious art? there are some uh, there are some in the Jewish tradition, for example, and actually uh, in the Muslim tradition that feel this commandment is a commandment um, banning the creation of any kind of religious art or representation they they kind of take it at the beginning you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything so they interpret this to say that you know, all religious art is to be banned and is, um, is uh, sacrilegious. That's why if, many, many, if you remember many years ago, um, there was a cartoonist who made a picture of uh, the prophet Muhammad and um, Muslims got all upset because in their religion, this is verboten, forbidden. There's a ban. Well, the answer to this is no. And the reason are several. For one thing, um, the Bible itself does uh, command the creation of religious art. There's the stories of the building of the tabernacle and the building of Solomon's temple. And God instructs his artisans, his craftsmen to build build into these structures, you know, uh, 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 images or engravings or weavings of animals and flowers and cherubim. And then even in the Old Testament, God commanded Moses to the to, to, to sculpture of a, uh, a bronze serpent that the Israelites were to, to look towards for healing. Later on, it became an idol and an enticement for them. So uh, the the Bible itself does command and instruct the, the creation of religious art. And the second thing is that if we look at this commandment in its context, you have to follow up with the verse five. It's, not just to make for yourself an image, but verse five, you shall now bow down to them or worship them. So the image here is not so much um, you know, the creation of religious art as the worship of religious art, to bow down or to worship them. Here's um, perhaps a more difficult and controversial uh, question, and what about Roman Catholics today? When you go to their churches, and I've been to a fair number of uh, Catholic churches uh, over the years for weddings, for funerals, and things of that sort. And actually, um, in Catholic churches, vary quite a bit. In some Catholic churches, they're rather plain, almost almost Protestant. There's not a lot of statues and images. But in some, particularly, if you go to Rome, uh, Rome there are a lot of uh, various statues and works of art, 12 apostles, of course, Jesus, stained glass window. And uh, of course, through history, there's been a lot of conflict between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholics, and even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there were conflicts about uh, this because this being one of the 10 important um, laws in the Old Testament. And um, there, uh, Catholics argue that, you um, they don't worship these images or these statues, they venerate. And so they they say venerate is simply a deep respect for the meaning behind these sculptures. And so their argument is that they don't worship these images, they simply venerate. veneration and worship to them are uh, two different things. Another argument is that And that's one of the reasons why they combine uh, the first commandment and the second commandment. By combining the first and second commandment, their argument is that uh, the 10 commandments does not ban uh, the worship, uh, the the 10 commandments only bans uh, the worship of um, images of pagan gods or foreign gods, because they tie the two together. The implication is that you should have no other foreign gods so therefore don't make any images of foreign gods. The implication there is that um, it's only pagan foreign uh, deities that are banned from worship Uh, but it's okay to make images of the true God, the God of Israel. Well I think I think that exegesis is actually a a little bit uh, shaky especially when you look at Deuteronomy 4 but um, this is um, this is you know a, a an important and major difference between uh, the Roman Catholic division of World Christianity and uh, the Protestant division. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I went to a silent retreat that was sponsored by a Evangelical Church organization. And it was held at a um, Catholic retreat center in Pennsylvania. And um, we had a good time. Um, there was uh, like a day of silence and everything. But in this Catholic retreat center, they had a lot of these images and statues. And um, in particular, there were statu- Sacred Heart of Jesus statues, where they were actually statues where, you know, the Sacred Heart of Jesus is actually coming out of the statue, and there were other statues as well. And um, I, um, I just felt very uncomfortable um, being around those images. I, I, I I just for me uh for me as a as a Protestant evangelical minister and believer, I just felt very spiritually uneasy with those images all over the retreat center and um you know I, I, I think um between me and you I think we Protestants are on the um, the, the right side of this um, second commandment that it's banning all images, whether of true gods or false gods. It's really pushing this idea of what scholars call an iconic worship. In other words, you know, you have icons. These images or statues. These are icons, and the Bible is clear that there are to be no icons of worship. So that's why we use the, 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 the an icon or an iconic, that is no image and like, you know, with the A or an uh, an iconic worship is really the idea behind this. Um, and I, again, it's, uh, it was distinctly different and provocative in the, um, in the ancient world. And, and so, uh, so proper worship today really should um, focus uh, not on images, not on statues, but should focus on God's word, the speaking and the teaching of God's word, and um, avoid uh, all of these kinds of icons. Okay, well, let's get to the nitty gritty. How does this apply today? How does this apply to us today? Here's one understanding from uh, one scholar and um, you know, um, I, think, I think he's right that there is something different. I mean, there's an overlap between the first commandment and the second commandment, but, um, but I think it's proper to separate them even though there's some similarity overlap. I think there is something uniquely different that sets apart verses four to six from verse, um, uh, from verse three. While the first commandment is about who to worship, the second commandment is about how to worship. You know, Christian worship is to be an iconic, without images of God or, or any kind of deity. Here's an interesting psalm that illustrates the uniqueness of the God of Israel. Psalm 115, uh, verse two, you, you, you know, the, the nations around Israel, they had their deities, they worshiped many deities, one high God and other de- gods, and they would look at Israel and they said, you know, um, Israel is a little bit different, and a little bit weird. Verse 2 says, why do the nations say, where is their God? So um, the, implica- the, the implication here is that these these other nations, you know, look at Israel. And says, "Don't you have like an image? Or don't you have a statue? What does your God Yahweh look like?" I mean, and there's a Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant is not, you know, it's kind of God's footstool or God's throne. You know, God is like invisible. So the nations say, "Verse two: Where is their God?" The response is, "Verse three: Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him." But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So the uh, second commandment has not so much to do with who to worship, but as to how to worship. A second application here is this is a reminder that God is not like us. He is wholly other. And I think the reason why God does not want us to make of any statue or image of God to worship is because, you know, there's nothing human beings can ever create that will be anything close to representing who God is. He is wholly other. Here's some verses from Isaiah to emphasize that. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. You are my witnesses, is there, is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock, I know not one. I am the Lord and there is no other, apart from me there is no God. I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me, there is none like me. If you recall uh, in my first message, I I believe it was early this year in January, I showed the trailer of this interesting Christian uh, film called American Gospel. And this reminds me of one part of that trailer where uh, the speaker says the, the problem with the American gospel is that we have created a God just like us. And so God is just out there to fulfill our needs and to answer our prayers. I, I think the, the, maybe the, the philosophy or the theology behind this is to, to remind us that God is not like us. He is wholly other. The uh, one commentator made an interesting comment, and I'll just quote him here in closing. Idolatry is making one's own gods. So if the second commandment forbids and bans the worship of idols, human creations of God, then idolatry is making up one's own gods. Here's some. interesting quotations from uh, John Stott. He has a commentary on the Book of Acts and he talks about idolatry and how Paul, you know, critiqued idolatry in the Book of Acts. And uh, here's what he wrote. All idolatry, whether ancient or modern, primitive or sophisticated, is inexcusable, whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship, or unworthy concepts in the mind. For idolatry is the attempt either to localize God, confining him within limits which we impose, whereas he is the creator of the universe, or to domesticate God, making him dependent on us, taming and taping him. Uh, A few pages later, here's another comment from John Stott. Idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a god substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place of God, uh, which uh, occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth and power, sex, food, alcohol, and other drugs, parents, spouse, children, and friends, work, recreation, television, and possessions even church, religion, and Christian service. So I think the, uh, the, 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 the final application here is to ask ourselves, what are our idols today? What are the things that we worship? What are our idols today? And to prohibit that from our mind and our thinking and our allegiance to the Lord. For, um, for some of us today, sports might be your idol. We just finished watching the Olympics. It was amazing. I, I had the opportunity to watch more than I usually do during the summer. And so for many people, Simone Biles, the greatest uh, uh, Olympic uh, athlete and a gymnast in world history, maybe Simone Biles is your idol. God says, no, do not worship idols. For some of us, perhaps education, especially in the Chinese American context, you know, that Ivy League school is my idol. I wanna get into Princeton, it's right here in New Jersey. I wanna get into Harvard or Yale. That Ivy League college is my idol. God says no, no to that. For some of us, social media is our addiction and is our idol. Something happens to you. I wanna go on Facebook. I gotta put it on Instagram. I gotta put it on Twitter. Social media, your idol. How about politics? For some of us, politicians are our idol. If you're a Republican, Ronald Reagan is my idol. If you're a Democrat, um, Barack Obama is my idol. If you're a Republican, if you're uh, if you're a Republican, Donald Trump is my idol. Some have substituted polit- political leaders over their own religion. For others. Hillary Clinton is my idol. For Democrats, they have substituted a politician for their worship of God. How, even theology, some have substituted theology as their God, the word of faith movement, that's my God, that's my idol. For some it might be uh, the, the reform, uh, there's, um, you know, there's an evangelical reform movement. And some of them say, well, that's my idol, I worship them. We have a we have a uh, we have a joke about them. We call them the TRs. The TRs we uh, call the truly reform. There's the reform, and then there's the TRs, the truly reform. So uh, idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes. And I pray the Lord convict us all for the idols we substitute for our God in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, in many ways so ancient and incomprehensible in our modern age. We just pray, Lord, that just as you taught us to have no other gods, we are today to have no other idols. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.